Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Let's pray as we begin today. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and be transformed to live, both thinking and doing, the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. It is good to be with you as we continue in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Today we're going to have the second part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. All of chapter 17 is Jesus praying for his disciples. And as we will learn over the course of these five weeks, praying for us too. But we're taking it in sections. And last week was the first five verses in which we talked about Jesus' kind of declaration of his ministry as glorifying the Father. And he, he did it very humbly. Uh, that almost sounds like a, a uh, I, 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 what's the word? The, the humble glory that is uh, contradictory. You know, it sounds like a contradiction, humble glory. But that's exactly what Jesus uh, was offering when he lifted his eyes to the Father and said to the Father, you know, how he prayed in the third person, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And so if you missed last week, go back and listen to the podcast is up. I uploaded it this morning, uh, the first section of chapter 17, and uh, and go back and read, listen to that and, and read through it together. But this morning, let's concentrate on the second part where Jesus begins to talk and pray about his disciples and their safety in the world, their place in the world. Um, and so we're going to look at verses 6 through 10 this morning. So let me reread those. Last week we read the whole prayer at the beginning, all of chapter 17, but uh, and then just talked about five verses. So today, six through ten, just four verses. Let me reread those for us now. This is verse six. I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they know that everything that thou hast given me is from thee, for I have given them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. All, are, all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. Let's stop there. Four verses, six through ten. Now, 
you're obviously, remember I'm always reading because of my study notes are based out of the, the old revised standard version. So if it sounded a little archaic to you, I'm reading out of the old revised standard version. Uh, but uh, in yours, it, it probably is a little more updated. But let's take these verses apart and let's think about them, these four verses, verse by verse. And the first thing that I think Jesus is, is teaching in this prayer, remember this is a prayer, this whole chapter is a prayer, but it's a, it's a, very, uh, it's a very didactic prayer. He's teaching the, his disciples as he prays. And obviously this is a part of that part of that Holy Spirit wisdom that, remember when Jesus said in chapter 16, that he will guide you into all truth. Uh, John, who is writing this gospel, writing it down you know, decades and decades later, is recalling this whole prayer of Jesus and remembering what an impact it made and how he taught so much through it. And he begins with this, this phrase, I have manifested your name. He's talking to the Father. Father, I have manifested your name. What does it mean to manifest something? What does that mean? It's not a word we use every day. Make known. To make something known, okay. I never used that word too much in my own work or vernacular until I got into a business where there was actually a business where there was a warehouse, and I found that with shipping and receiving, every shipment had a manifest. Wow, a manifest. What's a manifest? It was a list. In that context, it was a list of everything in that shipment. And it was to declare what had been carried and needed to be checked off to declare what had been carried to them so that they received what was really supposed to be given to them. Okay? And remember in the beginning, last week, what did we talk about in, in chapter 17? Jesus was concerned in this prayer of of glorifying the Father, and he actually asked the Father to glorify him because everything, as we're going to hear him, we hear him say in the last verse, all mine are thine and all thine are mine. Jesus is declaring his union with the Father in this prayer at several different points in this prayer, and he's declaring that everything the Father has is his and everything that's his is the Father's. And right now we're specifically thinking of these 11 disciples that are in the room with him. And as we're going to learn through the prayer, every disciple who will ever follow and believe in Jesus, that's you and I. But for now, let's think about what he's manifesting. He's manifesting the name of the Father. Now, Greek word we want to learn this morning, okay, very important word, and it is this. Onoma, onoma. And that is the Greek word rendered here in verse 6 as name. Name. Now, in Hebrew, if we were looking back to the Old Testament, we would see the word Shem. Anybody remember the name Shem in the Old Testament? What? Ham and Shem and Japheth. Yes, sons of Noah. That's right. And why was Shem important? What, what is he famous for? The lineage of Jesus Christ traces back to Shem. Yeah, when you read some of those genealogies. So let's take this apart and think just a little about the importance. What's, what's in a name? What's the importance of a name? This is why original languages like Greek, the New Testament being written in Greek, are so important. Because in English we lose something in the context. And you've been learning that 
as we've gone through this Bible study when we pull out important words. And there's a couple more that we'll learn in, in this context this today. But let's start with name. If I say, what's your name? Mark. Mark. I knew that already, but I'm, you know, Mark. Mark what? Herman. Mark Herman. Okay. What do I know about Mark Herman? Because I just learned his name. Do I really know anything about Mark? I really don't. I know he's a man. He's a man that came from her somewhere. Her man. Okay. If his name was Mark Robertson, I would know somewhere down the lineage, way back in English, he was a son of Robert. You know how that works? Isn't that weird? You know? But but in, in English, we have this thing, we think of the etymology of names, where we're trying to trace back what did that, where did that all come from? Where did that all start? Well, in the Greek, this word, this Greek, this Greek word, neonoma, it means so much more than just a name. Okay, it means in that name, something is being revealed. The character of the person. You've ever, you've heard the the idea that there was, uh, you know, uh, such thing as a black sheep in a family, right? You know, what do they mean when they say, "Oh, he's the black sheep of the family." What does that mean? Straight away. They strayed away and they gave maybe the family a bad name. Okay. There's that connotation. Well, the idea of this word in the Greek is, is that this is, is to reveal the character of the person. And in this case, the person is God. Okay? God Almighty. The Father. Now, let's think about the name of God a little bit. If we go back into the Old Testament, into the very beginning of scriptures, we know the very first word that is used to reveal God to us is a Hebrew word that is Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're reading in English now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in the Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is a fascinating word because it's a compound word that infers the plural. It is, a, by its very nature, a plural, plurality. You read the creation story in Genesis and you get things like, uh, let us create man in our image. Who's, who's God talking to? The Trinity. There's a Trinitarian. So the, the idea of the Trinity, as we've taught many times in this Bible study, is throughout Scripture in so many places, the plurality of the Godhead. But Elohim really isn't God's name. Do you remember Moses, the story of Moses? Moses asks for God's name, doesn't he? Do you remember that story? It, in the, in, before this miraculous burning bush, Moses asked God for his name. Who shall I say? Who shall I tell them sent me? And what, do, what does God tell him? Does he give him his name? He says, I am. And you know what that is in Hebrew? If you're reading Hebrew scriptures, what is I am? What is that in Hebrew? Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay. Yahweh. And, and in Hebrew, that becomes the that becomes the essence of who God is. It's like his personal name. Okay. But it's so holy the Hebrew people won't say it. They never say the name Yahweh. The Jews would never say the name Yahweh. They they would say the name Adonai. 
if you ever go to a temple service or synagogue service or anywhere right now, you're gonna, in, they're praying in Hebrew, you're going to hear the word Adonai over and over and over and over again. Because Adonai is directly out of Hebrew means what? Does anybody know? It means master, Lord, Lord master, like a master and, and uh, servant type relationships, Lord master. So we see in English when we read the word Lord, I think it's this, spelled this way. When you see the word, sometimes in your English Bibles, Lord is spelled this way, with all capitals, you know, one big and then three small little capitals. That means, that's just a little code that a lot of English translations have used ever since the King James Version, I think. I could be wrong on that. Um, to equal uh, the personal name of God or Adonai when the Hebrew people were trying to express Yahweh, but they didn't want to say Yahweh because it was too holy. So, Lord. But yet, that still isn't God's real full name. If we, As we read the New Testament, we're introduced to a new name for God. What is the new name that Jesus introduces? He says, I have manifested thy name. What is the new name? What is it? Remember, this is Greek. This is Greek class. Do you remember the Greek word that Jesus calls God over and over and over again in the New Testament? In fact, it's the only word. I think I could be wrong on this when I hate to use superlatives like that. I think it's the only word that Jesus ever refers to God with. Master? No. Father. Yes, Father. Which in Greek is pater. Pater. P-A-T-E-R. Pater. Father. Now we see this, remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, and we've talked about this before. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says in the third verse that when we see Jesus Christ, and I'm paraphrasing here, we are seeing the exact representation of who God is and the radiance of his glory. Jesus Christ is given as God in human form on earth in a mystery that is too great for us to really comprehend. And Jesus is showing us in this high priestly prayer that he has come to manifest or to reveal everything that's ever been hidden about God. Because how did God's people know him in the Old Testament? Or from the time God began to manifest? I mean, it's fascinating to me that people like Abraham and before him Noah and before him, you know, Adam, it's, it's just fascinating to me that in fallen nature, after sin had entered the world, that humans could even know God and sense his presence and his leading in the world. But that's the story of God. You know, there, there was this knowledge of, of worshiping God. We see it through the real patriarchs like Noah and Adam and uh, people like that. But as you go all the way through the Old Testament, how did they really know God? They knew him as their Lord, their master. They revered him. They were in awe of him. He was almighty. And there's so many names in Hebrew. El Shaddai. You've heard that. You know the song by Amy. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean? The almighty God. El El Yon. That's in the song. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. El Yandra Adonai. Those are all Hebrew names for God. She's singing about names of God. All of these 
words that we find in the Old Testament, if we read it in Hebrew, that reveal something different about the character of God. El Roi, our shepherd. Uh, you can just go on and on and on. Um, but in the New Testament, Jesus is, you know, a Jew. He's, he knows the Hebrew faith. He's come through it. But he doesn't choose to use any of those names. He chooses to use the name Father. Why? That's totally new. Now, there is Father is used twice in the Old Testament. I think it's twice, maybe three times. In very, it's Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah. Uh, I didn't do my homework on that, but it is. It's not. It's very indirectly, it's prophetically used of God. But as a general rule, Father wasn't how they understood God. Why is it important that Jesus taught his disciples, Father? Everywhere he went. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. From the time Jesus began to call men and women to him, he said, Father. Why is that so important? Our respect, reverence. Perhaps, perhaps. It's an intimacy. That's right. In fact, if we go into the really the 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 etymology of language here, that Jesus is probably speaking Aramaic. That was the spoken tongue. Greek was, while they knew, probably the more learned among them knew some Greek, they didn't know it well enough to just write in it uh, as fluently. But Greek, the time of Jesus' time, you know, even though the Roman Empire is ruling the world, it's Greek that is the, the language of commerce and the language of literature and the language of high education, and uh, especially in the Middle East and the Eastern world. And in that, this idea of Father is new and it's important because in the Aramaic, the word is what? What do we know is the Aramaic word for Father that Jesus uses? We hear him use it a couple of times in Scripture. What is it? Abba. Remember that? Abba. Abba, Abba. You know, in English, sometimes they'll translate it, Abba, Father, but that's redundant. Father, Father, Abba. And it literally in Aramaic is said to mean of even more intimacy. Daddy. Like daddy. Maybe the best thing we could have of English equivalent is, is daddy. You know, I, I I still miss my kids calling me daddy. When I was little, everything was daddy. And then it becomes dad. You know? Uh, I still miss that. Daddy. If I'm not careful, I'll find myself signing a note to them and still writing it daddy. <laughs> Even though they're grown-ups. But... Uh, you know, this idea, God is inviting, Jesus is inviting his disciples and us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because God is our Father. And in the fullness of time, now that Christ had come, he is here to reveal, to manifest the fullness of our Heavenly Father to us. And so this, this and, and what do we know about what's in a name what do we know about the Heavenly Father, the Father God? Well, what are the attributes of a father? What, what, when you think of a good father, what should you be thinking of? I mean, a, a love, unconditional love, right? I mean, it should be, you know. That's God's love for us. We know that through the Greek language, too, the agapeo, the unconditional love. That's how a father loves his children, unconditionally. And, and we're strength of a father. There's so many things that are manifest in that name that Jesus... And there are things you would miss if all Jesus ever did was call him Lord. 
And this is one of the challenges I think we have to our Christian faith today. When we come to belief in God through Jesus Christ, so many people get stuck in that place of worshiping God in reverence and awe, and that's not wrong, that's good. But if we never go deeper, if we never find him to be our father, then we're really missing the intimacy and the union for which, not only for which Christ came, but for which Christ died, rose again, and sent his spirit to give to us. Because that's what he's saying here. When we look at this whole thing, look at some of these words back here again. Verse 7, now everything that you've given me is, is for them. Everything you've given me, Jesus saying, is from you. I've given it to them. I've given them, not just your name. He's going to go on and he's going to say in verse 8, he says, I've given them the words which you gave to me. The words that the Father God gave to Jesus the Son before all of eternity in the Godhead, he gave to him. That's a powerful thought. So let's think about the word here, because the word, word, actually comes up twice. You see it in verse 8. Jesus says, for I have given them the words which you, Father, gave, gave me, and they've received them, and they know them in truth. They know that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. And then it goes on and it says, uh, in verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. Okay. All are thine, and all that is yours, in other words, is mine. And I am glorified in them. The word that is used here is the word logos. Or logos, if we had good Greek pronunciation, I can all—I can't bring myself to say that. My daughter, you know, took Greek at in, in college this last year, and she told me, "Dad, you're saying that wrong. It's not logos. That's our English coming in. It's logos. That 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 letter O in the Greek is a, more of a A. The logos, okay, of God. That's what he chooses here. Now, there's another Greek word Jesus could have used here. He could have used. Let's, let's write it on the board here for us. He could have used the word, okay, we know that he used the word logos, and where have we heard that again all throughout this book of John? Remember in the beginning, in the chapter one, in the beginning was the word, or the logos, I'll just be English here, the logos of God. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, okay? So we know that the logos is Jesus. Okay, and this is going to relate back to the word name here in, in just a second. I'm going to show you how. And he could have used another word. He could have used the word rhema. Ever heard of that word? Rhema? Ever heard of Rhema Bible Fellowship? I think it's based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a big charismatic movement. Uh, churches around the world, Rhema Bible. We had one a block away here in this old church building over here on Ellis Street. It was Rhema Bible Fellowship for a while. What does the word Rhema mean in Greek? Pastor Mark, do you know? Yeah, I know you know. I think you know. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. We uh, talked about this yesterday, and he helped me with it. Yeah. Rhema. Um, okay, Pastor Brown, I'm just going to give you my... Uh, 
Kenneth Hagen variety. There you go. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. Uh, Rama is is the idea. It's the it's the it's the word idea of both confessing and professing at the same time. Yeah. I'm standing on a, a concept and I'm speaking it. And it evolves forth as I say it. Yes, key word there, as I say it. That's a very good definition. Thank you. Very good. Well, I've just uh, broken our old home there. there. I have some friends that, my wife's friends, who uh, <laughs> trained there. So I heard a lot about, you know, Hagen, and that's where yeah. the prosperity gospel comes right. from. Right, right. You know? And they're very sincere about it. Absolutely. Wrong. The Absolutely. Rayma idea is that uh, is along the lines that I can um, speak. I can speak it. Yeah. And 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 I say profess. I can <clears throat> as I speak it, it comes to pass. Right. The now, there's a whole connotation there of the power of the word, the spoken word. The word of faith and things like that. Uh, versus logos that was and is. Right. Yeah. Versus the eternal aspect of logos. Okay. Yeah. So why didn't Jesus use the word rhema? So if we were writing a story, we're talking in conversation, and we're going to use the word rhema, we're, we might use it in the context of, of spoken words. Okay. It could have a very common meaning and just sayings like famous, you know, you, you, you open a fortune cookie and it's the words of Confucius, supposedly. I, I, Confucius had a heck of a vernacular. I mean, he just really. But, uh, you know, you're supposed to get these wise sayings, okay? Um, they're clearly not Confucius words, but, um, but the idea is they're famous wise sayings, okay? And that could be used. You, if you were going to talk about wise sayings, you'd use the word rhema if you're writing in Greek. But, but John didn't do that. He uses the word logos because it's not our faith isn't based on memorizing wise sayings. Okay, now our Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, you know, and and you can pray it a couple of different ways. You can just memorize it and pray it because Jesus said pray it, or you can, or you can try and enter into the meaning of what every single line of that prayer meant. The, the eternal meaning of it, if you will. And, and I think that's why Jesus, our faith, John, John uses the logos here. Because he, he says, I have given them the words that you gave me. I mean, how powerful is that? The mind of God in action, in real flesh and breath and living is Jesus Christ. And he is Giving them the mind of God, not just sayings. So there's this there's this union uh, in, implied in logos that we're entering into a mystery of the mind of God, uh, and you don't get that just with with Rhema so much. Um, and, and he's talking about because it's truth, as he's used that word truth so many times in in this book. You know, back in chapter eight, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Chapter 14, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and he's saying right here, they know in truth now. In verse 8, they've received these words of God, and they know them in truth, and they know that I came from you. That's what Jesus has been doing for three years. He wanted the disciples, these 12, now 11, to know that he is from the Father. 
And as we're going to hear, as we've already heard in John's gospel, we'll hear again, is he says, I and the Father are one. There's a whole lot of Trinitarian teaching in this gospel. Even as you look at verse 9, when he says, everything that's yours is mine and everything that's mine is yours. And I'm paraphrasing there, of course. Now, I want to say in, in about this at this point, in this coming back to this Greek word father. The logos, the name of God, the father, the most important name being the father, that reveals everything to us. That reveals everything to us about God. That is the fullest revelation. To hear El Shaddai or to hear uh, Elohim or to hear Adonai, to hear all those other names of God that are all valid and good, but to hear all of those does not, it leaves us inadequate, inadequately prepared to truly enter into the knowledge of God. And remember what we heard last week, what we studied about what does the word know or knowledge really mean? In the Greek, it means Remember, I had it, I erased it. There, there it is right up there. Ginosko. Remember what, what did we say that meant? It meant to know something intimately, not to just memorize it. So much so that it becomes a, fi- a fiber of your being. And there you have that word for even sexual intimacy when it says Adam knew his wife and, and things like that. Knowledge is an intimacy. Well, now Jesus is giving us intimate knowledge of the Godhead. The Father, wow, that, that, that's mind-blowing when, when you think about it. So as you read the New Testament, when you keep these thoughts in mind, you know, oh, the name of God. When you just read, oh, I came, I manifested thy name to them, as it says for you. You know, if we're not careful, it just sounds like what Mark did to me. He manifested his name to me. I'm Mark Herman. Okay, great. Now I know, but I don't really know who you are, you see. But... If I understand that if Jesus is introducing me to the Father, to God, the person they've always known as God, they've always known as Adonai, they've always worshipped God, these are Jews, they've always worshipped God as Adonai. Brad? Yes? I remember one time. I think it was after Pastor Jane was back with us for a while, and I don't remember the circumstances, but it was in the chapel. Mm-hmm. And he was at the altar starting his prayer. And I can see it. He says, oh, my father. And it was it just gave me chills. Mm, yes. He knew who he was talking to. That is so true. That, was, that is so true. And I can remember hear him hearing him pray so in-depth about the Father. You see, when we, if we're not careful, we pray a lot in the, in, with the words God, with the words, you know, Jesus. Um, like we've talked about here, you know, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? You know, it's the evangelical mantra. We have to end every prayer in Jesus' name. What, what does that mean? It's not some magic slogan. To, to it, it, what it means is we, we must, to pray in Jesus' name, what it really means is to pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that Peter says in the book of Acts to be baptized in the name of Jesus? But Jesus says in the Great Commission, go there and baptize in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Did you ever think about that dichotomy, that difference there? Peter said, you know, there's a movement in Christianity. It's, it's, it's in the uh, Pentecostal circles that uh, only baptize in the name of Jesus. They won't use that Trinitarian formula. They're oneness Pentecostals, only the name of Jesus. Because Peter says, baptize in the name I said, well, you know. But Jesus says the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What, what's happening there? They're getting tied up in rhema. They're getting tied up in sayings and missing the logos or the meaning. The meaning is to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the name of the Father because he is the revelation of the Father. He's the revelation of the Son. He's the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Christ is sent into this world to manifest God to us in a way that we can now not just believe, but know that he is real and that he loves us. And we know that because 2,000 years later, Christian men and women are hopefully loving with the same love that Christ taught his disciples. And they taught their disciples. And they taught their disciples. And they taught their disciples. You get it? Because, as Pastor Mark said in his sermon last week, I I thought was so powerful, he said, if we just loved everybody the way we're supposed to, the way Jesus loves us, there wouldn't be any need to just preach the gospel. It would be lived. And John, the very writer of this gospel, says to us, they will know we are Christians by our love, later on in his first epistle. So I I want us to enter in a a little more deeply why this name of Jesus, uh, I mean, this name of God was so important. Um, The idea becomes important. Um, One of the great, I want to read to you something here from, uh, from one of the early church fathers. His name was Cyril of Alexandria. He was the patriarch of Alexandria, and we've learned that's the that was kind of one of the five big centers of Christianity. Uh, that was in Egypt, and in the 400s, the early 400s is when he he was patriarch or the head bishop. And he, he said, "This is really good. Listen to this. When the Savior declares that he has made known the name of God the Father." It is the same as saying that he has shown the whole world his glory. How did he do this? By making himself known through his wonderful works. The Father is glorified in the Son as in an image and a type of his own form. For the beauty of the archetype is seen in its image. That's so important right there. You see, until then, all they had was an archetype of God. Until Jesus came in the flesh, all we had was all the world had was an archetype. And what's an archetype? You know what I mean by that? Kind of a an archetype, something that points to something else. Okay, it resents or resembles. I mean, resembles something else. You know, an archetype. That's all they had. But now we have the image of God in Jesus and His wondrous works, wonderful works. Cyril says. The only son, getting back to Cyril, the only son then has made himself known and he is in his essence. This is talking about Jesus. And he is, the only son, is in his essence, wisdom and life, the artificer and creator of the universe. He is immortal, incorruptible, 
pure, blameless, merciful, holy, good. He's on a roll there, isn't he? He's preaching. That's good. His father, Jesus' father, is known to be like him since he could not be different in nature from his offspring. The father's glory is seen as in an image and a type of his own form, the glory of the son, meaning Jesus. Why are these words so important? Because what he's teaching us here is is very important theological truth. Jesus is God in human form, the very mind and essence of God. What What do we understand as Trinitarians? One in essence, three in persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, undivided, but yet three in persons. That's so important. Why is it so important? Because every single I want to use the I want to use the word heresy, okay? The heresy means wrong teaching. And to be wrong that implies that there has to be a right, okay? There has to be something that is a right way of looking at things. And that we would we would use the in Greek the word orthodox, okay? Which means right glory or right way of doing things, right way of worshiping, okay? And there's heretical or heterodox, meaning other ways of seeing things. Here's my point. Every single heresy ever began and that ever will begin again, unsadly, always begins with a flawed understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we see it from the very beginning. The early Christians, these fathers like... Saint Cyril of Alexandria is the main patriarch who was arguing at the at the third council, the great ecumenical councils. Remember what the councils were? We've talked a lot about them, like the Nicene Council, where the creed came from, and then the second council in Constantinople, where the last part of the creed came from. And now the third council gets called in the year 431. That's during the time of Cyril of Alexandria. Why does it get called? Because there's a problem with teaching about the nature of Jesus. It's a problem that's beginning up in the, in the area of Antioch in Syria. And uh, a young man from Antioch gets named to be the patriarch of Constantinople. So he's in the area of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. That's modern-day Istanbul. And what he does is he, he begins to... Teach, his name is Nestorius, this, this bishop, his name is Nestorius. And he begins to teach, he starts to take issue. And we don't have time to go into his whole life story, but I, I think Nestorius was, was somewhat misunderstood. And he, there, there's been some healing of his image throughout, throughout history. But he was trying to get to something that was very important. And that was, what is the nature of God? But the problem was he misunderstood it. He understood. There was a there was a there's a phrase used about Mary, the mother of Jesus, okay, and that phrase was Theotokos, the teaching of the first 300 years of Christianity, and even in the ecumenical councils, the first and second, they they defined Mary's title, Mary, the mother of Jesus, as Theotokos. Now, do we know what that word means in Greek? Theos, you know what that one is. We've learned that one, right? That means God, right? Theos is God. Tokos means to bear something, to carry it. So Theotokos would be 
bearer of God. The understanding that Mary bore God in the ark of her womb into this earth. So Nestorius said, no, 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 I think she needs to be called Christotokos. Christotokos. What, what Christos means what? Christ. Okay. Bearer of Christ into the earth. Well, is that important? Are we just semantics? Are we back to Rhema here? Or is this a logos issue? You know, before we just dismiss it and say it's semantics, it's extremely important. It was so important the rest of the Christian world began to say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We've got to talk about this. So they get this big council together. Why was it important? Because if Mary's only the bearer of Christ, what is Christ? Christ is a title. Okay, Christ is a title, the anointed one, the Messiah. Well, you could be anointed for a lot of different things, but it doesn't say you're God. Okay? Theotokos recognizes that Jesus is God. Okay? God of the same essence. So from Nestorius's little bitty tiny heresy that he starts teaching, there flows an even greater heresy into the next council and just 20 or 30 years later. Uh, where, the, you know, is Jesus Christ, what is the nature of Jesus Christ? Is he God and man in one mystical hypostatic union? Or is he God and man in two separate natures? And some of you might think, well, who cares? <laughs> who cares? He's my Lord, he's my Savior, who cares? Let me tell you why you should care. Let me tell you why we all should care. Because this began to be so important, because if he's just God and man, and what was born of Mary is just man, then God didn't die for my sins. Okay? God didn't die on the cross. He wasn't the perfect sacrifice necessarily, because he wasn't perfect as God. Makes a huge difference. And the incarnation is not even real because God wasn't born into this world. Can't even talk about the incarnation if he's not God. There a lot of stuff are wrapped up in these words. St. Augustine said it this way. He was alive at this same council, one of the greats that was at that council. And St. Augustine said it this way. He said, if Christ isn't God, and I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. If Christ isn't God, then whatever part of him was not God is not redeemed. Christ's death on the cross was to redeem humanity, right? So do I want him to be fully human so that I can be fully redeemed? I'm a fully human. I'm all human, okay? Ain't no God. I'm, I'm not God. I'm fully human. We're all fully human here. Fully human and fully God is a mystery, okay? But... Human and God, separate natures, is not really mystical. And why is it so important? that What happens with all of these heresies that begin with the nature of Jesus? They, they're trying to put God and reduce God down to something we can understand. So if you leave Bible study today going, I didn't really understand all that, that's okay. We can't really understand it. We can embrace it. Okay, what takes faith? What we understand or what we don't really understand. What we don't really understand. We can, we can understand enough to embrace it, okay, the truth, and believe in it. 
But if we totally, it's actually the height of pride and arrogance to think we could understand God and his nature. And that we could understand all this. Yes, jump in. Um, was that the third century you said was this council? Fifth century, early 400s. 431 so, is the Council of Ephesus. So is there, um, uh, so did that, do you see that faith burned out? Or do you see that flaming through the ages, raising its head from time to time? And Great question. <laughs> Great I have question. a tougher question for you. No, that's a good question, though. Is, is it, in. and I'm asking Pastor Brad Riley's uh, opinion here, but okay. let's be prophetic, too. Okay. I mean, what do we watch for today? Oh, that's a great um, question. Yeah, that would run, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a perfectly, mm-hmm. yeah, what do we watch for today? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially if we're watching our modern worship and mm-hmm. uh, our modern teachings, what are we, what should we be concerned about today? I, I, I love that question. I'm going to answer it two different ways. Because Nestorianism is really the second great heresy. The first great heresy was in the 4th century, the early 300s. And that was, as we've talked about before in here, the Arian heresy. That Jesus was not God, but rather was a created being. Okay, He was the Son of God. Now we see that today. We see that fully well developed today in what? Jehovah's Witness. That's the teaching of Jehovah's Witness. It's also the teaching of Mormonism to an extent. They deny that Jesus is really the same essence of God. So Nestorianism, Nestorianism in many ways is a recreation of Arianism. It's this refusal to really grasp this teaching that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in essence, three in persons, yet undivided. Consubstantial. Consubstantial is the word the creed uses. Of the same being. The word in Greek is hypostasis. This, this union, this hypostatic union of beings. Now, what do we look for? I, I think we look for, it's happening all over. This type of heresy, I, I, that's a harsh word. We don't like to use that word because it conjures up words of in and out, us and them, you know, we talked last week about Joan of Arc getting burned at the stake because they thought she was a heretic. Uh, we don't we don't want to be that way. Okay, we want to love everyone and we want to be inclusive and we. But it's important that we, and this is important in my ministry, that when we teach, we teach the real essence of who God is. Because if we don't really, if we can't understand who God is, then we can't understand how He loves us, and and that God is this eternal being that is Father, Son. And we're going to hear how Jesus even describes himself as a brother at some point. And Holy Spirit. And today, in many circles, Trinitarianism has been lost. Trinitarianism is lost. Nobody preaches on it. Nobody teaches on it anymore. So we're in danger. I see, I see that's part of this heresy coming back, is that Trinitarianism is lost. Marcia. Well, I, just, I think that is so important for us to kind of understand that, because as more and more Muslims move into the area... They're very adept at saying, oh, yeah, I, you know, I believe in Jesus. He was a good teacher. He was a good man. He was this and that. But you, God cannot have a son. You know, it's, right. and, and, and younger people will just, oh, 
you know, that makes sense to me. And if they don't understand that whole piece of it, that Jesus is God, it it will thro it throws people off because they're um, kind of taken aback if they start to talk with Muslims that oh yeah they they are familiar with Jesus but that's just kind of a tactic that they do to disprove right this whole trinitarian that's a great word of warning right there uh, about the Islam the Muslim teaching of God. Because that is prevalent in our world, and it, it goes all the way back to the 6th century. Islam began in the 6th century, okay? not just within 200 years of what we're talking about here. And every single heresy that or other teaching about Jesus and God that began, began with a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And Muhammad, besides just believing God spoke to him in this book that out of the sky, he did not, could not accept this idea of God having a son. And they wanted to think it's... And then look at the Mormon faith. It's a reincarnation of that same thought. To them, God must have had sexual relations with something or someone in order to produce a literal son. And that literal son is Jesus. And they're, again, they're concentrating on words and semantics and not logos and mind of God and thought and being. And if we're not careful... See, because what you said, I love what you said, Marcel, about the fact that when Muslims, and I have some friends that are Muslims, and we talk about these things, when they talk with young people or just anyone, uh, young people we think know are very impressionable if you don't have a deep foundation here, uh, they talk in a, about Christ in a way that, or Jesus in a way that makes sense, you see? Because what we're talking about, what I'm teaching here this morning, what St. Cyril was teaching in the fifth century and what we're learning this doesn't make sense nothing about the holy trinity makes sense but i want to ask you a question do you want a god that makes sense i don't want a god that makes sense i want a god that's beyond my capacity to make sense i want the creator of the universe i don't want to be arrogant and think i can understand god i want to be humble and say, Lord, I'm your servant. Now, here's the beauty of God. That's a very profound statement, Pastor. That's a real nugget. Thank you. That speaks. Well, thank you for that. I've been, I've been feeling that in preparing for this lesson. Do you want a God that you can understand? And when we teach, when we evangelize about Jesus, we, we are constantly... I've just seen it happen. We're constantly reducing the gospel and reducing Jesus down to a, a level that we think people will understand. What, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're not preaching the gospel when we do that. We're not even allowing the Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction and understanding. I cannot teach you to understand, no matter how hard I try up here, I cannot teach you to understand any of this. But the Holy Spirit can. He can enter into this equation, and he can. Yes. That makes us equal with him. Yeah, we think we're equal. We're, we can teach on God's God's message on God's level. I mean, that's not what Jesus asked him to do. What Jesus asked his disciples to do was to wait in the upper room for power. And he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth. And then you will go out and be my witnesses. You know, we're called to, we need to witness the miracle of Jesus. We need to witness the truth of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
the, the divine mysteries of God that we simply cannot understand, but we can enter into. And you know what I find? Here's what I find that I think is so powerful. The younger generation of today, and we've talked a lot about those in different weeks in this class, the younger generation everybody's so concerned about, and we should be rightfully concerned about them, the, the, the millennials, if you will, I find they're extremely drawn to mystical union, to spiritual things. In fact, the, the, this, the, uh, the, uh, the statistics tell us that although only two out of ten go to church, 85% say they're very spiritual. Because when they look at the church, they can't find the spiritual, mystical side they're drawn to. It's, it's, it's there. It's obvious to me. Why? Because if we reduce God to an intellectual level of something we can teach people to understand, we've already missed. We've missed what Jesus has called us to do. We've not left room for the Holy Spirit to interpret and to draw. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, remember back, I think it was the sixth chapter, he said, no one comes to the Father but that the Holy Spirit draws it's the Spirit's work, not my work, not your work. So what God do you want? So one of the reasons why I think this is so important, and we're out of time for today, um, but, but I've pretty much gotten through the four verses that I wanted to go through. Uh, probably forgot some things in my notes here, but we'll, we'll try and pick that up next week. Um, I want you to get a vision for who God really is. Who is God? Okay, he's a he's beyond your understanding, but he has invited you to come and see, to come and try. And I love J.I. Packer's line. I've told you this before from the book Knowing God. J.I. Packer, great evangelical writer, a charismatic writer and teacher uh, on a great level. In the 70s, wrote a book called Knowing God, and in that book he said, God will always take you deeper than you ever dreamed you could go. You want to know God? Enter in. Stop reading the Bible as a book of history and read it as a book of revelation. Pray about it. Why did we pray this prayer before we started Bible study? Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity. This prayer, by the way, I discovered this prayer some months ago and started having the class read this before. And, and then I realized before I, when I discovered it, I did a little research on it and found out it dates back to the 5th century. These are the words tweaked a little by me to sound a little more English, but the words of St. John Chrysostom, Patriarch of Constantinople in the 5th century. Illumine our hearts, O Master. Let this be our closing prayer. Okay, you have your cards with you? Let's pray it twice. We prayed it at the beginning. Now let's pray it again at the end. Let this be our closing prayer today. And think about it in the context of everything we've been trying to learn here this morning. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires, and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, 
are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming to Bible study today. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.